everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Cybermark Trust Approved Knockreiner. <laughs> did you get the label of approval or did you just get shipped from China? I, I said I'm approved. See, see okay. this label? Ignore the fact that it's peeling off a little. It says approved. As Corey's hinting at on today's episode, we will be discussing the FCC's latest or new proposal for a U.S. cyber trust mark for IoT devices. Uh, before that, though, we'll cover the newest DARPA-led initiative in cybersecurity and then end with some pretty dang cool research into machine learning and the machine learning development pipeline. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, train our way in. That's weird. Whatever. So let's start this week uh, with a something we kind of touched on during our Black Hat like special recap episode and really a story that started, what, seven years ago now, if my math is correct? Uh, so we mentioned in our Black Hat special episode uh, that DARPA, the, oh boy, Defense Something Research Something Association, Defense Advanced Research Something Association program? Whatever. <laughs> I'm just letting you, know, you struggle and being quiet. <laughs> it took me two years to finally get CISA. Now they're our best friends. So maybe DARPA will just take a little bit of time for me too. But anyways. Defense uh, so Advanced Research Projects Agency. Projects Agency. There we go. So this is a technically federally funded organization designed primarily around or I guess like military adjacent or things that can be used in the military. It's funded by the Defense Department. But it's a an arm of the government that's designed to pump money into potentially cool research projects. Like some examples there was, remember those like autonomous cars and like military trucks that they had where they drove around on like an obstacle course, uh, basically like Le Mans 24-hour race style to see how well they could do autonomously. Um, back in 2016, there was the Cyber Grand Challenge, uh, which was kind of the first foray into AI and security at a um, massively funded level. Uh, the Cyber Grand Challenge, it was all about uh, developing automated defense tools that could discover and correct software flaws in real time without a human there in the real time. Obviously, they were programmed by humans and trained by humans. Um, this was back in, I think 2016 was when they had the finals at DEF CON, uh, back in the Paris and what was the Bally's what's Bally's called now horseshoe hotel or something in Vegas. No clue. <laughs> they ripped the sign off the wall and they're naming it something else. So to give some context back then in 2016 participants, they were given a, a binary. So an executable file, or I guess a series of them. And they had to demonstrate their ability in four key areas. So they had to automatically find vulnerabilities in these previously unknown binaries. They had to automatically patch the binaries without sacrificing performance. They had to automatically develop exploits uh, to attack other participants' binaries. And while doing all this, they had to implement an actual security strategy. Like they had a finite amount of computing resources and they had to balance this resource assignment between going after competitors, seeing what competitors are doing for patching and responding to that, and also evaluating how well their own actions work towards the final getting a final score in here. Um, back in 2016, the winner was a, a team or system or AI or whatever called Mayhem, which was developed by, at the time, a startup called For All Secure. Uh, so... For All Secure was on the was the funded track is what they call it. Basically, you had two ways to get into this. There's the open track where you have to compete in order to get in and the funded track where you send a proposal to DARPA. They actually give you some money to try and get you jump started into it. Um, and For All Secure ultimately launched Mayhem as a product a little bit later as well, too. Um, so the benefit to DARPA for this is it gives them a way to a kind of fun way into jumpstarting funding into a advanced research project like artificial intelligence and security. Um, I don't yeah, know. and you, 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 you kind of, uh, so I, I assume you're getting on to the new challenge now that we've talked about what they've done in the past. And I, you kind of missed it, I think, because in your rush to get out of the keynote, 
I think we're both listening to, uh, what's her name, Maria Markstetter, Azuria, uh, keynote, but I think you wanted to beat the crowd, so you missed it when I think it was, her name was Perry Adams, I believe. Uh, one of Dark Buzz program managers came on and, and uh, Jeff Moss came out and did uh, just one more thing, Steve Jobs style, uh, and she came on to announce a new thing. So let's get into that. Yeah. So at the end of that opening keynote, uh, DARPA and Jeff Moss announced a new AI cyber challenge. It's a two-year competition that's, again, designed to drive innovation in artificial intelligence and security. Uh, so to give you some context about how this one will run before we get into the details, they've got, again, two registration tracks, either the open track where anyone can submit and uh compete a compete against each other the top ones ultimately get into the the finals and stuff and then they also have a funded track where they'll accept seven small businesses uh that have to apply with a proposal for their project they'll give them a million dollars each to actually design and develop their system and they're allowed to compete as well too uh it all kind of registration starts or closes in fall of this year there's the semifinals competition that'll take place with, I think, 20 teams at DEF CON in 2024. The top five teams there get $2 million just for making it in the top five. And an invite to compete in the finals in DEF CON 2025, where first through third place will earn another $4 million, $3 million, and $1.5 million uh, in that order as a prize. Uh, so this, it's a, it's kind of similar to the previous cyber grand challenge, but it has a few differences like that previous one. If you remember, they were given a actually compiled executable or a series of them they had to protect in this one, they're given access to source code. And so, uh, they're given a collection of what's called challenge projects modeled off of real world open source projects where they have to find vulnerabilities and secure them, uh, with the goal of creating this cyber reasoning system. They can find and fix these flaws without any human assistance. They'll be given the source code and a special build environment that they interact with through APIs. So instead of them, you know, actually running a build environment, compiling software, they'll have like a special API created for basically doing the same stuff. Uh, it'll encompass basically every modern programming language, C, C++, Java, Rust, Go, JavaScript, TypeScript, Python, Ruby, and PHP. They also said that it'll encompass the 25 classes of software weaknesses from MITRE's top 25 most dangerous software weaknesses report, and that 50% of all the flaws will be memory corruption related flaws specifically. So this is cool. Like it's been, like we said, seven years since the last one finished. And you know, seven years ago, I think you and I were both in the 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 room when it closed, I think. Um, at the end of DEF CON that year. And it was cool. Like, I mean, we were in the audience participating. So all we saw was a big server up on the stage with blinky lights that honestly yeah. looked cool. But the concept <laughs> itself was still super interesting, like AI hacking and defending AI. And just think of how much our industry and the world now has evolved with artificial intelligence and machine learning in just the last seven years. Like, yep. this is going to be pretty dang cool. This, this will probably be the future. And I, I would love to automate finding vulnerabilities to fix them faster. So it's a a good thing. Although hopefully the machines won't start to find new classes of vulnerabilities that go deeper and deeper and have us fixing all kinds of things. But I would rather find and fix them quickly than not know about them at all. A agreed entirely. And I, I'm honestly, I'm looking forward to the tools that come out of this. Like the whole point of this is to develop new technologies which yeah. we, and we already saw the winner from and last very open source focused. I, I think yep. the government realizes that that the whole eighty percent of big things have open source. Most projects have it, uh, yet we all know the fact that it's maintained. Usually, I mean, there's Apache Group who has nice resources, but there's a lot of open source that string shoe budget single volunteers. And yet it's responsible for one little module that's part of critical infrastructure. So I think for open source, this is a asymmetric way, way to scale vulnerabilities when you don't really, you know, everyone talks about the beauty of open source as anyone can audit it, but the reality is very few people do. So it's going to be good to this have. This is like, 
it feels like this type of technology, and I'm sure like obviously DARPA is funding it. I'm sure there's private organizations right now working out on their own. Like GitHub oh, Copilot sure. already has, like GitHub with Copilot has some source code adjacent artificial intelligence. And it feels like GitHub, GitLab, the likes like that are a great place for this type of technology to plug into also. Like these central repositories where we keep all of our open source code would be a great spot to have an AI powered tool to try and find some of these flaws without needing humans to go dig through everything. Because, I mean, the reality is, like you just said, open source is a very tough problem to solve because no one wants to go spend money when they don't have to, when you can benefit from the tools like that without having to pay for it. Like other than being a good net citizen, what's the point of funding some of these? So I think this is cool. I'm looking forward to DEF CON 2024 now, even more so than I was. Uh, to go see some more blinky lights and server racks and read white papers on what exactly they did. And uh, man, even more so for 2025, where the gloves are going to come off and they'll hopefully be a pretty exciting uh, challenge around it too. So moving on uh, to the second story, uh, this is a super exciting one coming from the world of government regulation. Uh, so this, you kid, but I think it ties to predictions we made. It feels like ages ago, maybe three or four years ago, but something that should happen. And we've seen, speaking of DEF CON, we've seen Black Hat DEF CON talks that recommend what we're about to talk about for, yep. for ease for consumers to figure things out. So the story starts in the middle of July of this year, where the FCC announced a proposed voluntary cybersecurity labeling program for Internet of Things technology, which they're calling the U.S. Cyber Trust Mark. Uh, so the goal of the program, it's something that like the federal government and like folks in the industry have been saying, hey, we need something like this. And the FCC is finally taking the reins on running it. The goal is to enable consumers to quickly at a glance for like a product that they're buying, uh, know which devices meet acceptable security standards set by NIST in this case, kind of similar to that Energy Star program for appliance energy efficiency. So, you know, if you go to Home Depot or Best Buy right now, there's that big yellow sticker on almost every appliance saying this is how much energy it'll take, a good measure of its efficiency. That's a voluntary program, but the reality is almost all appliance manufacturers participate in it because it's kind of the expectation right now for consumers. So the goal with this U.S. cyber trust mark is to develop that, but for cybersecurity and IoT devices so that somewhere down the line, we'll have this standardized labeling program where at a glance, when you pick up that box off the shelf or look it up on Amazon, you can get an idea of what the security practices and designs are for that particular device. Uh, so back in July, they trademarked a logo, which Corey, have you seen this logo yet? Um, uh, nope, I have not. <laughs> basically, it's I like read. a little shield with some funky squares inside of it that kind of look like they're getting sucked into a black hole. Maybe it's uh, no script. I read the whole article. I need to... To update that website with scripts running, was the art was the logo actually in it? This was actually in their July press release, so I had to I go digging see. for it. It's a pretty basic logo, but it's kind of cool. But the point of trademarking this logo is that you know, with a trademark, you cannot use another organization's trademark without their permission. Yeah. So the FCC, as the steward of this trademark, will verify or work with other organizations to verify that the product meets whatever the requirements are. And then allow them to slap that logo on it. That's and good. In theory, it's like it's diet companies in some words, right, Mark? Where you know uh, people might use words on their products to make it seem like they have a healthy diet product, but then uh, yep. FCC or, or FDA in this case got smart and tried to to have uh, certain requirements around certain words. So trademarking least, that uh, logo makes sure people can't cheat the system by posting a slightly altered one saying they got an A or that it they're approved. <laughs> certainly doesn't stop the garbage from China making its way into the system with this logo just put on <laughs> because trademarks don't exist. But it does, at oh, least yeah. within the United States, anything that's going to be legally sold in our country and probably in our partners' countries as well, too, uh, adds some credibility to uh, when this logo gets slapped onto a box. So back in July, in their announcement, they gave this timeline. 
where they said they were uh, had just submitted a draft for a notice of proposed rulemaking or a uh, NPRM uh, to the FCC board itself, which once they approved it, they then release it publicly for comment. But the goal of ultimately getting this program up and running by the end of 2024. Uh, so the story continues where last week the FCC just released that public notice of proposed rulemaking uh, for public comment. It's a 48-page document with uh, about all of the excitement as you'd expect as a published document from the FCC. Um, but once you actually read through it, there's actually some really interesting, like, I want to back up. Like The FCC, I don't picture as a massively cybersecurity aware organization, but they actually had some really good notes in this document about I think communications, I know what you mean. Cyber, like cyber is not their only thing, but they're dealing with communications. I think they're more cyber aware than some. So they basically, they bucketed it into like five main categories that they're seeking public comment on, five main key areas. First off, they want to know about the proposed scope of devices and products that should be included, uh, how Very oversight important. and management of the program should look, like who has what responsibilities, uh, how they develop the criteria and standards for this program for actually getting that label on your box, uh, whether they, the FCC themselves, even have the legal authority to create and run this program. They're seeking comments on that. And then ending with how they promote digital equity, uh, things like DEI, and would this potentially affect that in a positive or negative way in the industry? So we won't go through the entire 48 pages, but there's a few things I wanted to point out. And I think the first big one is their proposed scope and some uh, comments around that one. So first off, uh, they point to NISTS, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, a definition for IoT as uh, those devices that have at least one transducer, which is a sensor or an actuator for interacting directly with the physical world and at least one network interface like Ethernet, Wi-Fi, or Bluetooth uh, for interacting with the digital world. So that's NIST's definition. And the proposal from the FCC is to add two modifications to that. So first off, they want to add internet connected to the definition, pointing to NIST's observations that uh, many IoT devices use standard internet protocols. And when those get exposed to the internet, can be to disastrous results. And they also want to add the premise that any IoT device must be capable of intentionally transmitting RF energy. And this is mostly in regards to the FCC's limited authority. They're the Federal Communications Commission, and they primarily deal with things like radio waves, TV, you know, uh, satellite, uh, internet, uh, Wi-Fi, whatever, radio. Does radio still exist? I think so. Um, so because of that, they're limiting the scope. And I want to pause here before continuing this section. This was the first thing that stood out to me as a, maybe this isn't as great as I was hoped it would be. Because they, at right, and that we'll get to the their request for a comment in a second, but they're specifically excluding IoT devices that only have a hardwired connection in this case. It has to have some form of RF transmitting, like Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, for it to be categorized as this. What are your thoughts yeah. on that, Corey? I, I like when they added internet connected because the NIST definition to me, in, you know, one, they wanted at least one transducer or sensor that interacted with the physical world. And that makes me think OT, operational technology, things you have like a, a thermostat, a fish tank temperature, you know what I mean? I mean, why why does it have to have a sensor that directly interacts with the well, physical so world? Would a camera classify as that then too? It's a sensor that interacts P with the Possibly, physical but still to me, IoT is any internet connected device that doesn't look like a computer. And the one I'm getting to is frankly, network equipment that you buy all the time, firewalls, access points, that's IoT to me. Some people, you know, I guess the technologists know that it's a computer, but it's just something that only has wired. And that's why I'm getting to the next thing. I like that they changed it to internet connected, but they it has to transmit RF energy. And that means it has to have wireless of some sort. So does that mean a rack mounted internet device or even a tabletop internet device without Wi-Fi does not qualify as IoT? Uh, 
I, I do admit most consumer IoT is Wi-Fi nowadays. The whole point of it is toys and things that don't exist in a land closet, but exist somewhere in the house. So 99.9% .9 of the time they have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. But I think it leaves out a bunch of, you know, pretty critical types of network gear that are more land closet type IoT devices. But maybe that's not the point of IoT. Maybe, you know, maybe my definition of IoT is not exactly right. And I actually, so I've got a, and maybe I'm reading too much into the like exact wording of this, but when I see internet connected, I think internet exposed, or at least it has some interaction with an internet service, not necessarily exposed to the internet, but you know, calls home to a cloud service. What about local only IOT? Like some th systems like that exist. Should that fall under this? If it doesn't interact I, I with the I think if it service, technically it can go to the internet, whether or not you do it or not, makes it internet connected. Like if it speaks TCP IP and you can mess up a configuration and it can have a simple outgoing connection, not even an incoming connection to it, to the internet, to me, it qualifies as IOT. So would network what, connected are, instead of internet connected be a more appropriate label for that then? Are, are, are you, no, because I think it's internet. Like I, what device are you talking about that doesn't actually connect to the internet? I mean, I can imagine a device that you would give only a private IP and you wouldn't tell it your gateway, but even my, my NAS can get, well, what device doesn't actually, that that has an IP and is intended to work only on your local network? Um, I'm looking around my room and I think my watch, as an example, only communicates with my phone. And would you consider that IoT since it's network connected? And it's a wearable. It over the Bluetooth stack. And my watch doesn't only interact with my phone. It can connect to my Wi-Fi network and go directly out without my phone. So I'm not sure if that's true. Yeah. It, it certainly anyway. does Bluetooth and other things to the phone to communicate to it. But I guarantee you that my watch can download and listen to podcasts with my phone off. I've got, actually, I'm thinking back to some of my IoT research days and the bin of network connected crap I bought. And there were a few that they did not call home to a cloud service. So like some cameras that you could only be accessed from the local network that did not have a cloud service at all. Um, and in those scenarios, it is network connected in that you have to be on the same subnet. So thinking to my IOT research days, you know, I've got a box full of network connected crap, uh, as I an example, you have like the, the egg cart, you have an egg so cart that's that one where just... <laughs> that one in this case would be considered IOT because it connects over Wi-Fi to a cloud service that my app from the grocery store, I can see how many eggs are in the carton. Uh, I could, I never set that up because that is absolutely ridiculous. But there's a few cameras I got where they're network connected. You connect them to Wi-Fi, um, but they are only accessible from the local subnet. So you have to be on the same Wi-Fi, open up your app. It, I don't know, uses broadcast or multicast to find it, but they don't interface directly with the cloud, but they do at least sit on the Wi-Fi network. accidentally port forward everything to those private IPs and connect them you to could, the internet regardless. You could, but would you call that... Internet connected or yes. network connected? They, they have an IP and an idiot user can connect it to a gateway that gets to the internet. I think the whole point of IoT is once you give it a TCP IP connection, it's up to you to make sure it's not internet connected if you don't want it to be. If it can be internet connected, then it's an IoT device, even if the device isn't specifically using the internet for its capabilities. But okay. I even think, I, I mean, you probably agree with this, even that one device that doesn't call home. I respect whoever makes that camera, Mark. A camera that only works locally and is set up to do that, that is far and few between. And this uh, give me all your information, everything has to call home to China, including your solar panels that don't need it, age. This was, if I remember right, one of the cheapest ones. And I think it was, they probably just couldn't even afford to spin up a cloud service <laughs> for it. So, Lesson learned, go with really cheap crap IoT and maybe it will be secure by accident. Was literally, I think it just exposed <laughs> RTSP to the local network. The app would just port scan for anything that has RTSP open uh -huh. and then connect to it. Um, so anyways, but so they proposed that as the, the scope. They go, then go on to have a few very specific questions in the doc saying these are what we are looking for comments on like first off they want to know does it unduly limit devices that should be eligible for participation this particular scope 
uh, specifically uh, does preventing uh, devices that are wired only IoT from uh, being it, does that impact the success of the program? Uh, are there any specific unintentional radiators or incidental radiators that should be included? So remember, their second bullet point was it has to intentionally emit RF energy. Are there ones that just incidentally do that maybe should be included? And then uh, should they consider adding any of these devices at a later date to the program too? Those were a few of the questions they're asking for people to comment on. And so I can argue about internet connected versus network connected, but I do think they are, there is a not significant, but there is a at least not insignificant blind spot by not having wired only devices. Like you said, though, the majority of devices we see these days are wireless, but it feels unnecessary to claw that out, even though I understand why they have to, because the FCC generally doesn't have jurisdiction over wired network traffic well, like they do for anything that emits RF radiation. Um, so uh, they also noted they want to know if the scope should include like the full IoT product. So should it just be the, the physical device itself or should it include the cloud services that back it as well? Like as an example, picture a camera that calls home to a cloud service for hosting video snips along the way. Should the uh, this IoT cyber trust mark thing only be for the security practices around the physical camera? Or should they take into consideration the cloud services behind it also? What are your thoughts on that, Corey? Probably the cloud services. I mean, they're trying to tell the consumer whether or not it's secure. I, I, I mean, technically, you could have a grade saying this particular device is okay. But honestly, if it's connecting to the cloud service, that's really part of your security. Your information will be up there. Your So probably cloud services too. Did you have thoughts? I agree. I think so. Because I mean, even for my own old research, a lot of the vulnerabilities were in the cloud application and not necessarily the hardware itself too. And if your cloud application allows anyone to view anyone's camera feed that uses the service, that's a pretty serious flaw that I think consumers should know about, or at least practices around protecting that type of flaw. And I don't, they don't talk about it. It really isn't just about the device, but the company, I, I, I do think they need to simplify this like Energy Star, because we're talking normal consumers just looking at something and getting an at-glance at idea of security. But I kind of want the score to not just apply to the single device you're buying or the verification, but the whole company. Like there are, there are things like SOC 2 certifications, ISO 2701 certifications that don't just say, you know, of the 10 products this company sells, this one is verified. The, those certifications say this company has a programmatic uh, security governance and actually pays attention to cybersecurity and does at least these things to maintain risk registers, et cetera, et cetera. So frankly, I would, uh, to me, this grade shouldn't be only single device specific, but should give a, a customer or consumer an idea that the entire organization the device comes from is good to work with because regardless of the security of the single device, that company is going to have a lot of information from their customers. I'd hope that that's a factor, at least in the labeling. Like the, the labeling has to be on the individual device, like the Energy Star yeah. ones are. You don't get like a all Samsung washing machines label. For sure. But like the practices of the organization is a massive piece. Like what does their software development lifecycle look like? How do they secure that? That's got to be a giant piece of the puzzle for it. Um, the final uh, request for a comment on the scope was, should it apply only to enterprise devices? Um, so should it include like the random crap you buy off Amazon or should it be just, you know, the meeting room tablet attached outside the door? This is where I would flip it. I, I presume, and also the way the FCC is making that I, I, the whole point of this is to simplify for consumers. So I feel like it absolutely has to include consumer devices. That said, I don't want this to throw out things that I consider enterprise IoT. They're they're not consumery. They're I, I guess that's kind of crazy because I'm also putting more requirements in our business if we have to do these labels one day. But uh, I, I wanted to apply to uh, to enterprise gear too. But I think it's actually most valuable in the consumer space. Yep, agreed.
Uh, so moving on to the next section, which is oversight and management. So it proposes that the FCC will be responsible for oversight and management of the program by creating and owning the trademark and then taking steps to authorize that label's overall use in a way that ensures its integrity. They also mentioned they want to work with third-party organizations to help develop some of the standards as well as the testing as well for it too. So they actually propose creating what they call the Cybersecurity Labeling Authorization Bodies or Cyber Labs, uh, which should be a collection of third-party entities uh, with expertise in security and compliance testing that help develop and actually test these products. Basically, the meat of this section is the FCC wants to be the overarching body, but they don't want to be the ones that have to go out and test every single product. They want to piggy that send that out to other organizations to do the testing and then say, get a thumbs up or thumbs down to slap the label on it. And I think that's pretty fair. That sounds like a good separation of responsibilities. And it makes sense to not have just a single government agency responsible for the entirety of this entire program. Um, the next section was the actual development of the IoT cybersecurity criteria. And it basically just points to adopting NIST's recommended IoT criteria as the basis for this labeling program. That said, they one of the requests for comment on this is, are there any other criteria that they should consider? Is NIST inclusive enough? Is there additional areas that they should potentially look at? Is there anything within NIST's IoT recommendations that they should exclude from this? Um, they propose developing a, uh, they call it the Standards Development Organization, which is going to be an industry group. So a collection of both industry uh, private companies and government agencies to help develop the standard based off of NIST. Um, and they propose a third party assessment created by the Cyber Lab to then test conformity. So this all again, sounds good. I like that they're not just trying to come up with it themselves. I like that they're even just not immediately saying it's got to be NIST and that they're soliciting comments for potential alternatives from uh, other experts in the field. Um, the administrative bit is pretty interesting. So this is where they describe the actual like thing that's going to go on the product. Uh, they propose a QR code that will allow the consumer to get more detailed information like the device manufacturer's level of support, the software update history, the privacy policy, and presumably any other potentially security-related information about that product or manufacturer. Uh, I think this is a great idea. So the Energy Energy Star label, you know, it's got some information like how much electric or the cost in dollars that you should expect to pay for energy usage on average for one year for this appliance. But other than that, it's it's kind of limited. In the world of cybersecurity, there is a lot that is going on, a lot of factors that could play into how secure this device is how secure the deployment of the device is. And I think it makes sense instead of trying to cram that onto a box to, I mean, this isn't, we're not talking a washing machine where you even have like the whole side of it to fill this out. We're talking like a small little less than a shoebox that's going to be on a shelf at Best Buy. And it feels like a QR code is probably the right, right way to do that. Um, when it comes to the, uh, the QR code, they're asking, they want to know <clears throat> what the QR code should include. Should it point to like a registry? Should it be regularly updated as the product security improves? Or is it like a one and done or once a year certification process? So even though like this QR code is a good idea, there's still a lot of like actual details that they have to flesh out. And that's what they're asking for comment on. Um, the authority section is a bunch of legal stuff that goes way over my head that uh, I am not an expert on. But they're basically saying, asking for comment on the justifications that the FCC gives on whether or not they actually have the authority to launch or manage this program. They point to a few sections of the Communications Act, like Section 301, that gives them the uh, general licensing authority. They point to a few other acts, uh, sections that allows them to establish performance standards and regulations. I think this is where that whole... I mean, it's, it's obvious this is where that whole only RF emitting devices thing comes in because they seem very wary about going outside their level of jurisdiction on it. Uh, thoughts, Corey? No, it sounds good. Uh, I couldn't help but thinking, great, we're still getting people to go to QR codes after telling them not to go to sites without looking at the links, but eh, whatever. 
I also <laughs> think that for this to be helpful for consumers, I, I it's nice to always have a website that has an update of the latest details, but I think the certification itself needs to stand alone and have enough information for the the buyer to know right away. I think uh, probably 1% will actually follow the QR code and get the details. Yep. The but it all sounds good. I love that they're doing, uh, they're they're pushing this forward. And uh, obviously, anytime they request comment means they're not trying to just force this down our throats on their own. They're trying to get you, everyone out there listening, other companies making IoT devices to share feedback so they do it right. The final paragraph was all about digital equity. So they point to the FCC's mission about ensuring diversity, equity, and inclusion in everything they do. So just asking for a blanket comment of, will this proposal prohibit or inhibit, uh, promote or inhibit advances in any of those uh, if it were to be enacted? And I, I like that. Like my gut says probably not in any way, but I like that they're at least like considering that and putting that in this official request or for comment on these proposed standards. So this is the very start of the journey, actually maybe a little bit past the very start of the journey, but it is wide open for comment from anyone, even you listening right now can go give your two cents to the FCC and potentially shape how this labeling program will work. I'm probably going to shoot an email with a few of my tidbits as well to them, see how that works. But man, maybe by the end of next year, we will have a what the heck do they call it? U.S. Cyber Trust Mark starting <laughs> to get slapped on uh, products all over the country. Uh, so the last story I want to highlight was actually it came from a talk that was given at DEF CON that I missed because uh, it was in the AI village. Uh, so if you're not familiar with DEF CON, they've got like four main tracks where they do like formal presentations and like a giant conference hall. But then they also have dozens of these topic specific villages or what they call them. Like there's a biohacking village where you can learn about biohacking. You can get a <clears throat> RFID chip implanted in your skin there if you want. There's the car hacking village where there's a Tesla you can go try and hack in, satellite hacking, RF hacking, so on and so forth. One of them, and a pretty popular one this year, <clears throat> was the AI village, which as you might suspect, is all about artificial intelligence in security. So the talk that was given was called, uh, you sound confused. Anyways, thanks for the jewels. And, uh, after giving the talk, the, uh, the shoot, the individual, which I'll get his name in a second, uh, published a blog post, uh, titled discussions on model confusion, weaponizing ML models. And it's Adrian specifically, Wood, by the way, <laughs> thank you. The re specifically about the researchers, uh, looking into abusing the machine learning pipeline. So the development pipeline to compromise some targets supply chain. Uh, so they pointed to this website called Hugging Face, which is a pretty interesting name, but apparently it's one of the more popular platforms for storing and sharing machine learning models. That's kind of like a like Python package index or Ruby gems or NPM for Note or for JavaScript, where as a developer, I can uh, also kind of like Git, where as a developer, I can build and generate this model, push it up to store it on this central repository. I can then for my other projects, go and retrieve this model to implant it into them. It's also, I can open source it. So other organizations and developers can take my trained model and use it in their program. Um, it's pretty dang interesting. And it integrates very similar to like downloading a package from the Python package index and importing it into your Python script. Um, now, this researcher, he explained the typical machine learning engineer's workflow, which is pretty similar to a software developer. He says, first, they, they face a problem, like they're trying to code something, they're trying to solve some issue with ML, and they may not know the actual solution for it. They'll search for a suitable package or model on Hugging Face. Uh, they will briefly look at the model card, which is like the description and summary of the model explaining its features and, you know, reliability, things like that. And then they will download and integrate the model into their project. And there's not a lot of easy tools or not a lot of appropriate time in order to do any deeper research into that specific model before plugging in and testing to see if it works locally on your machine. And the reasons they wanted to target machine learning environments is 
first off, they typically have a high level of access. It's typically has access to sensitive data, like build environment variables, um, other data that you're trying to feed and train the model with, so on and so forth. It's got direct proximity to sensitive assets. You can typically drop straight into or at least adjacent to the crown jewels for an organization in their build environment. Uh, it points to stealth. So there's low detection probability. There's not a lot of like code scanning products right now for scanning machine learning models. They're effectively just bytecode that's interpreted by a machine learning script like in Python or R or something. Uh, there's limited defensive tooling, so there's lack of tools that can identify issues, unlike traditional software package indexes. These days, you've got things like Sneak and a few other products that you can scan a traditional code repository to look for vulnerabilities or potentially malicious code. That doesn't exist for machine learning models. He's pointed to the first mover advantage. This attack vector is relatively uncharted territory. He's probably the first person really heavily looking into this. And then... At the end of the day, it enables code execution. Like environments are designed to execute code with these machine learning models. So when you just like think of it on that front, this seems like a pretty obvious research area that you could potentially get a lot of good findings in. Uh, so the first thing he pointed to, and I like this quote from his blog post was, it's open season for namespaces right now within the service. So a lot of organizations that you would think have some form of artificial intelligence or machine learning work going on behind the hood. They don't have an account set up on Hugging Face like Google does, OpenAI does, but Netflix does not, as an example. By the way, I think that's all part of first, like, this is new. I, I mean, the software development lifecycle for traditional code is very mature, very well developed, very well known which is why we might have more defense, more code scanning, blah, blah, blah. How, how many listeners knew Hugging Face, which by the way, I don't think started as a repository for models. It started as a way, like a chat bot, I think. And uh, the billionaire or the dude that made it and thinks it's worth two billion started changing it. But how? I bet you a lot of companies don't even realize the that model repository exists or just learning it now or recently so it kind of makes sense that even huge organizations like a netflix or a i don't know walmart whoever may not have uh, reserved their namespace on hugging face yet or any other model repository for ml yeah so he was hoping to like register some account names related to big brands like netflix <clears throat> and use them as a watering hole attack. So he'd post up his malicious model or whatever in there, and people would say, oh, that's from Netflix, and then download it and execute it. He actually found a, a funny trend, though. So he registered some organizations to try and lend that credibility, and he quickly found that software engineers and machine learning engineers from those organizations themselves uh, were making were requesting to join his fake organization for that. So like using Netflix as an example, maybe he went and registered Netflix and then a whole bunch of Netflix, actual Netflix engineers and machine learning engineers requested to join the organization. So he had uh, full admin privileges to this organization. He could see everything that the employees were uploading into it. Um, any models they uploaded, either public or private to the organization, he had full right permissions. He said in the quote here, it was happening over and over again with different organizations and was absolutely wild. Um, he noted that unless if you didn't use a like at company name.com email address, you couldn't get the verified label next to it. Uh, but he's also pointed out that didn't stop people's behavior. So like he registered Netflix, a bunch of engineers came in and just started posting potentially internal sensitive models, whatever. And he was able to then abuse those for his attack. Yeah, Twitter or X has kind of showed us the verified symbols meaningless. So I guess they just carry that to other platforms too. Yep. Um, so he also decided that uh, to leverage the hype uh, around like artificial intelligence and machine learning right now. He said basically every day it seems like there's some big advancement, often out of left field, meaning coming from a company no one's ever heard of before. And he said he drew this parallel to like cryptocurrency and smart contracts like five years ago where it seemed like there was always this big new technology in blockchain or cryptocurrency and people would hype it up and attackers would abuse that to hype up bogus or straight up malicious cryptocurrencies, blockchains, and smart contracts. 
Uh, he also pointed out an issue in Hugging Face. Their font choice actually hides typo squatting pretty well. The number one and the letter lowercase l are identical in the font cho uh, choice they use. So he went and registered Google uh, G-O-O-G-1-E, and he could clone all of their uh, publicly shared models. And when you go to search for G-O-O-G, you know, maybe it auto-completes. His were indiscernible from the actual legitimate Google uploaded models too. Um, when it comes to the malware, he pointed out that some models are more resistant than others, like Onyx is relatively safe, but TensorFlow and Keras models can be easily injected. They support running arbitrary uh, uh, expressions, which are designed basically to let you add your own mathematical expression in there to transform data. But there's nothing preventing you from just calling Python's exec function and executing something on the underlying operating system. So in his example, uh, he created a, it's called a Lambda function. So it's an anonymous function within Python that contained a call to exec where he would pipe in actual malicious code. That code would go download a binary from a bucket on Amazon, decode it, and then execute it on the operating system. So when you build this model, it compiles everything as bytecode, which then gets run in the machine learning program on other people's workstations. And he found another interesting uh, bit from this where when you go to run the machine learning model, the malicious code ends up executing during both the training and the inference phases of it, which in his example, it was <clears throat> creating a remote access shell on this host. And so it actually spun up a minimum <clears throat> of five shells on the host, which he said, that's an extra bonus because sometimes shells can be a little bit finicky. And this way he has at least five to connect back to. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So <laughs> he also added some logic to... Uh, limit the impact, so only uh, execute in specific environments, either to evade detection or to limit it within a bug bounty scope. Um, and then he basically committed this tainted model back to Hugging Face to one of these fake organizations repositories and waited to see what would happen. Uh, he actually, so he described one scenario where he was caught. So some organization actually detected this like shell opening up or at least the uh, training.binary file executing multiple times. But here's the quote that he got from it. They said, uh, quote, based on contextual information, it seems like this behavior may be expected due to machine learning training. Confirm if the activity referenced above is expected for the user performing training of the machine learning model on the endpoint. So basically they caught it but since the malware is detonating in the machine learning environment, it looked just like training activity if you look at the process tree. And even though they saw it, they just they let it go. If they had actually taken that training.bin file and uploaded it to VirusTotal, they would have seen it was actually a sliver imp implant, kind of like a cobalt strike beacon, but open source. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, though, if you load the whole training model into VirusTotal, it comes up as green. Nothing detects it at all. So this is really cool research, in my opinion. Like, it's an area that people haven't thought of. Like you said, it's extremely new. Like, I had not heard of Hugging Face before, but apparently this is one of, if not the most popular repository, kind of like Python Package Index, for pre-built models that you can use in other projects. And because of the level of access they have in code execution, it can cause serious damages. Yeah, and to me, this is targeting the supply chain. And I feel like in if you're just looking at general computer security in the past, we always started protecting devices, then protecting code. And it wasn't until recently, later, or I guess we talked about supply chain before, but we always seem to forget supply chain. And that is a, a big focus now. So seeing that some researchers already looking at the supply chain of machine learning models and, and all, all the AI buzz going on, it's good that people are caught on to supply chain early on. I agree. And this does feel like one where <clears throat> now that the cat's out of the bag, we probably will see some poor folks downloading tainted models. But he also at the end proposes some actual technical solutions of how to address this issue. So he wrote a Python script that can extract basically all of the artifacts all out of the bytecode. And then you can analyze those to look for malicious code. 
Uh, he also proposed like having some of these tools built into the repository as well too, like we have for Git and Python package index and all the like. But the reality is like this is a brand new area that is rapidly evolving. And now is the time to come up with some of these solutions before it becomes even more widely used. So overall, this was pretty dang cool research. I wish I had gone to his talk because even just reading the blog post, I was sitting there like, man, this is absolutely nuts. I would have loved to see the crowd's reaction when he pointed out that all of these engineers started joining his yeah. fake company and then Classic uploading their social engineering. <laughs> it's, it's pretty awesome. easy on socialish development networks. We all fall yep. for it at some point if we're overly online social. No, it was really good. I, I recommend at the very least checking out the blog post. Uh, the cool thing about DEF CON is a lot, a lot of the mainline talks will end up free on YouTube. But the problem is the village talks are I are, think they're all smaller. recorded too. Or at least the major oh, ones that's were, cool. so this one should be on there. So there's a chance that this would be on there. So uh, cool news for people that couldn't go to DEF CON, this could be on there. At the very least, you'll get the main lines, and, and hopefully this village talk will show up. Exactly. So either way, I think that's probably the last of our DEF CON for now. Uh, now it's 360-something days until the next one, unfortunately. That's OK. I might need and the rest for that long to go back to Vegas again, especially yeah, in 107 heat. I did uh, preemptively take a COVID test after I got home, and thankfully I am not pregnant. So, man, <laughs> bullet dodge. I have not done that. I should uh, I should give it a try, but I feel fine. So maybe ignorance is bliss. Either way, great research from this year. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing like some of the follow-ons for this too, like especially with this one we just chatted about. Looking forward to seeing the future of research in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Man, I'm re-energized now. Let's go hack some stuff. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on X. That still feels gross. Thanks for ruining my favorite app, Elon. Uh, I'm at XORRO underscore, Corey is at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.